Thank you very much for that applause as we, <laughs> as we find our way to our seats and um, do a, a tremendous balancing act here with books and notes and microphone. Um, thank you very much for coming today. This event that you're at, Liminal States, is presented as part of the 2018 Penn World Voices Festival, an annual event that has been going on now for 14 years. This year we present the festival under the theme Resist and Reimagine, and I think this event, as so many of them do, but I think this one in particular will do justice to both aspects of the theme. I'm Chip Raleigh, the director of the festival, and because of that, I get to pick the best events for myself to moderate. <laughs> the festival is presented by Penn America, and I would like to begin, before we start, um, just to say a few things about this important organization. Pen America works to protect open expression at home and abroad. We champion the freedom to write. Our mission is to unite writers and their allies, that's all of you in this room, to celebrate creative expression and defend the liberties that make it possible. This is no ordinary time for our organization or for our country. We face unprecedented threats to our most important shared values, and your support is so important to fighting to protect freedom of expression and the press defending fact-based discourse, and resisting measures that would impair the free flow of ideas. For more information about Penn and Penn America, please visit our website, penn.org. And now, to our session and our panel this afternoon, Liminal States. With a title like that, I'm guessing there's a strong chance that everyone in here has an arts degree. <laughs> Am I right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have come. Um, we are, of course, talking about the phenomenon of being neither here nor there, of making a transition from one realm, one realm to another, of being in that space or doorway between the two and all the questions that arise from that. It's about transitions, transitions across national borders, across cultures, across sexual identities, reconciling the old and the new or living with the dissonance. Can these transitions ever really be complete? Is the old and the new a false binary choice? Is there perhaps a third way? We are joined today by three extraordinary writers and one extraordinary interpreter at the end. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce them all um, before we begin. To my immediate left, Kanchana Ukbabe was born in Chennai and educated in Australia. She was professor at the Uni University of Jos in Nigeria. Soulmates was her first collection of short stories. She now lives at Westbeth Artist Studios and teaches creative writing at Fordham University. She is the New York City Safe Haven Prototypes first writer at risk in residence. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Made possible by Fordham University, Penn America, and the Artists at Risk Connection for more uh, information about that Artists at, at Risk program, connection program, please visit the website artists at risk connection, that's all one word, dot org. Um, next to her is Akweke Emezi. She's an Igbo and Tamil writer and artist whose official bio says she is based in liminal spaces. <laughs> so she's perfect for this event. Born and raised in Nigeria, she received her MPA from NYU and now calls Brooklyn home, perhaps the most liminal space of all? We'll find out. <laughs> Freshwater, it's her extraordinary debut novel. And next to her is Negar Javadi, born in Iran to a family of intellectuals, 
who both oppo opposed both the regimes of the Shah and Khomeini. She arrived in France at the age of 11, having crossed the mountains of Kurdistan on horseback with her mother and sister. Extraordinary story in, a, in and of itself. She's a screenwriter and lives in Paris, and Disoriental is her first novel, which is just published this week in English, I believe. Is it just this week? Congratulations. <laughs> and next to her is, uh, is Ellen Chekwith. Sauchek, sorry. <laughs> Who will be interpreting for her um, this afternoon. So we're going to begin this um, session with um, some readings from each of them, very short readings from each of them, just to get us started. Then we'll have um, what I hope is a very free-flowing discussion about some of the commonalities of their work, some of the differences, and some of the themes of liminality that permeate um, their work. Um, and then we'll have a chance for some audience questions. So be thinking as we go through this session, if the stupid moderator didn't ask the right question, think of a better one for yourself, and um, we'll have some time to do that. And then at the end, we'll cap it off with another reading before we go from each. So first, Kanchana Ugbabe is going to start off by reading a piece of creative nonfiction, or a section of a piece of creative nonfiction called, appropriately enough, Liminal Spaces. Kanchana. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I can't see anybody, so I guess you are there. <laughs> <laughs> um, good evening and welcome, and thank you, Chip, for that introduction. Uh, this piece is um, from an extended piece of uh, uh, a, a non-fictional, creative non-fiction that I wrote last year called Liminal Spaces. I didn't know I was going to be on this panel. <laughs> uh, so it's just a, a portion from it. When you have crossed the oceans and moved from one continent to another, Asia to Africa, what is it that pervades the writing? There is intense nostalgia, perhaps, as we tap into memory, recalling sounds and smells. We write in terms of loss, loss of privacy, loss of possessions, loss of a way of life, loss and distancing from things and people dear to our hearts, displacement and dislocation. But what of the extraordinary accretions the extra dimension that unfolds to one's view of the world. I envision myself on a narrow strip of earth in the middle of a flooded territory. There is safety in being on this strip of sand. It gives you a firm place to stand from where you observe, you participate, you attempt to integrate. There is a unique angle of vision on this narrow strip from which I explore life in a way an expatriate or visitor to the country would not be privy to. It is also a space in which the native African, the owners of the culture, too familiar with his physical and social environment, would not find himself or herself. It is a liberating space, a space of keen insights. I insinuate myself into its crevices. I embrace the culture creatively. I write my journey and my search into my stories. The second image that comes to mind is that of a tightrope walker in a Russian circus. As a child, my parents took me to the visiting Russian circus in a huge circular tent. I held my breath watching the tightrope walker and the pole walking act. 
Walking a tightrope has its risks, but it also has its thrills. It's a balancing act where you have to be poised, so poised, so still, yet trembling between the abyss and a thin place. There is skill, an instinctive negotiation with the unknown, an anxiety bordering on excitement. I burrow into the tunnels of my mind. I weave my way through the alleyways of memory, like the protagonist's search for Zabalawi in Najib Mafus's short story of that name. It's a maze where certain spots of time stand out. Memory and the passage of years have blunted the rough edges of some experiences, while others take on a visible radiance. I see my life in frames as photographic shots. I saunter through the mnemonic chambers, the vestibule, the central nave, the transept, locating rhythms that draw me back to a place called home. Karen King Aribisala, in her book, Our Wife and Other Stories, writes fictionally and symbolically of the duality of a transitional experience. The foreign wife, who is often called our wife in Nigeria, wore a lace wrapper as she, as was expected of her, and danced at a family occasion. The lace cut into her heels, which bled. She kept dancing and shedding blood, grieving for the loss of home, for her element, like the little mermaid. It cut its edge into my alien, unaccustomed flesh, she writes, until every movement was agony. In my own short story, Exile, I write about the protagonist embracing an older woman, but it is out of sync with what is going on around her. Their embrace into the culture as an insider is simultaneously a rejection of the outsider for breaking a code of conduct. In another of my stories, Blessing in Disguise, a foreign wife, our wife, ruminates over her future home with a, with a co-wife in a polygamous arrangement and their triangular relationship as a threesome in front of the fireplace. Thank you. Thank you very much. And next we'll hear from Okweke Emezi reading from her debut novel, Freshwater. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, Freshwater's main character is called Ada, and she's Anobanje, which for lack of a better translation is a spirit child perpetually caught between flesh world and spirit world. In her case, it manifests as different selves that show up in her head, and the book is narrated by her and these other selves. For this bit, I'm going to read um, a chapter that's very short, but is narrated by Ada herself. I don't even have the mouth to tell this story. I'm so tired most of the time. Besides, whatever they'll say will be the truest version of it, since they are the truest version of me. It's a strange thing to say, I know, considering that they made me mad. But I'm not entirely opposed to madness, not when it comes with this kind of clarity. The world in my head has been far more real than the one outside. Maybe that's the exact definition of madness, come to think of it. It's all a secret I've had to keep, but no longer, 
not since you're reading this. And it should all make sense. I didn't want to be alone, so I chose them. In many ways, you see, I am not even real. When they speak so contemptuously of humans, I'm never sure if they mean me as well. Sometimes I wonder if there even is a me without them. They talk about Ewan, the man I married, as if he was nothing because he was only flesh. But I loved him, and that made him more than human to me. Love is transformative in that way. Like small gods, it can bring out the prophet in you. You find yourself selling dreams of spectacular hereafters, possible only if you believe, if you really, really believe. So in loving Ewan, he somehow became a god. I don't mean that in a good way. He made me suffer, but I still cast idols in his name, as people have done for their gods for millennia. It didn't end there. When the years accumulated and exposed Ewan's cracks, I covered them in gold and bronze. That's what you do for the idols you make. But I loved him, I really did, and he loved me, and that was the danger. Is there any story of a human loving a god that ends well? I was so busy pretending I was normal back then, I didn't know enough to think of that. So maybe he made me suffer. But how much can flesh really hurt spirit? Who do you think will be bruised more in the end? You see, you've gone and caught me. I'm talking as if I'm them. It's all right. In many ways, I am not even real. I am not even here. Extraordinary. And now to uh, Negar Javadi, who will read from the opening um, section of Disoriental. Bonsoir. À Paris, mon père, Darius Sabre, ne prenait jamais d'escalator. La première fois que je suis descendue avec lui dans le métro le 21 avril 1981, je lui en ai demandé la raison et il m'a répondu « L'escalator, c'est pour eux. » Par eux, il entendait vous, évidemment. Vous qui alliez au travail en ce mardi matin d'avril, vous, citoyens de ce pays dont les impôts, les prélèvements obligatoires, les taxes d'habitation, mais aussi l'éducation, l'intransigeance, le sens critique, l'esprit de solidarité, la fierté, la culture, le patriotisme, l'attachement à la République et à la démocratie avaient concouru durant des siècles à aboutir à ces escaliers mécaniques installés à des mètres sous terre. À dix ans, je n'avais pas conscience de toutes ces notions, mais le regard désarmé de mon père, attrapé durant les mois passés seul dans cette ville et que je ne lui connaissais pas, m'ébranla au point qu'aujourd'hui encore, chaque fois que je me retrouve face à un escalator, je pense à lui. J'entends le bruit de ses pas qui grimpent les marches dures de l'escalier. Je vois son corps légèrement penché en avant par l'effort, obstiné, volontaire, ancré dans le refus de profiter du confort éphémère de l'ascension mécanique. Dans la logique de Darius Sabre, ce genre de luxe mérité, sinon c'était de l'abus, voire du vol. Son destin s'inscrivait désormais dans les escaliers de ce monde, le temps qui s'écoule sans surprise, le regard indifférent des passants. Pour saisir la complexité de cette réflexion, il faut entrer dans la tête de mon père, mon père de cette époque-là, le tumultueux, le désabusé, comprendre le cheminement tortueux, magistralement absurde de sa pensée, voir, sous la couche de souffrance, par-delà la proté de l'échec, les étendues de délicatesse et d'élégance, de respect et d'admiration, apprécier la cohérence de sa décision, ne pas prendre d'escalator, et l'avidité avec laquelle il concentra en quelques mots, lui qui avait passé la majeure partie de son existence 
courbés sur une rame de papier à écrire tout ce qu'il était devenu et tout ce que vous représentiez. Mais vous le savez aussi bien que moi, pour prétendre entrer dans la tête d'un homme, il faut d'abord le connaître, avaler toutes ses vies, toutes ses luttes, tous ses fantômes. Et croyez-moi, si je commence par là, si j'abats déjà la carte du père, je n'arriverai plus à vous raconter ce que je m'apprête à vous raconter. Restons sur l'impact de cette phrase, l'escalator c'est pour eux. Raison qui m'a décidé en partie à entreprendre ce récit, sans savoir par où commencer. Tout ce que je sais, c'est que ces pages ne seront pas linéaires. Raconter le présent exige que je remonte loin dans le passé, que je traverse les frontières, survole les montagnes et rejoigne ce lac immense qu'on appelle mer, guidé par le flux des images, des associations libres, des soubresauts organiques, les creux et les bosses sculptés dans mes souvenirs par le temps. Mais la vérité de la mémoire est singulière, n'est-ce pas La mémoire sélectionne, élimine, exagère, minimise, glorifie, dénigre. Elle façonne sa propre version des événements libres, sa propre réalité. Hétérogène mais cohérente, imparfaite mais sincère. Quoi qu'il en soit, la mienne charrie tant d'histoires, de mensonges, de langues d'illusions, de vies rythmées par des exilés, des morts, des, des morts et des exils, que je ne sais trop comment en démêler les fils. Il est possible que certains d'entre vous me connaissent déjà, qu'ils se rappellent cet événement sanglant survenu à Paris dans le 13e arrondissement le 11 mars 1994. L'information fit l'ouverture du 20h de France 2. Le lendemain, tous les journaux en parlaient à travers des articles remplis de contre-vérités et ornés de photos de nous, les yeux barrés d'un rectangle noir. Peut-être m'avez-vous vu sur l'une d'entre elles, peut-être avez-vous suivi l'affaire. D'ailleurs, j'aurais pu commencer par là, au lieu de vous parler d'escalator, j'aurais pu vous raconter ce que nous appelons entre nous l'événement. Mais je ne peux pas, pas encore. Pour l'instant, tout ce que vous avez besoin de savoir, c'est que nous sommes le 19 janvier, il est 10h10 et j'attends. In Paris, my father, Darius Sadr, never took the escalator. The first time I went down into a metro station with him, on April 21st, 1981, I asked him why. His answer was, escalators are for them. By them, he meant you, obviously. You, the ones who were going to work on that Tuesday morning in April. You, the citizens of this country with your income taxes and compulsory deductions and council taxes, but also your education, your intransigence, your critical minds, and your spirit of solidarity and pride and culture and patriotism, your devotion to the republic and democracy. You, who toiled for centuries to achieve these mechanical staircases installed meters underground. At the age of 10, I wasn't conscious of all these ideas, but that helpless look on my father's face, acquired during the months he'd spent alone in this city, and which I had never seen on him before, shook me so much that even today, every time I see an escalator, I think of him. I hear the thumps of his feet on the hard treads of the staircase. I see his body hunched slightly forward from the effort, obstinate and resolute, unshakable in his refusal to take advantage of the momentary comfort of a mechanical ascent. According to Darius Sadr's logic, that kind of luxury was a sort of abuse, if not outright theft. His destiny was henceforth joined to the staircases of the world, to the passage of time without surprises and the indifferent gazers, gazes of passers-by. To really understand the complexity of that thought, you've got to go inside my father's head. My father as he was at that time, I mean. Stormy, disillusioned. You have to understand the torturous, magnificently absurd reasoning at work here. 
you see, uh, to see beneath the layers of suffering made more severe by failure the threads of delicacy and elegance, of respect and admiration, to appreciate the firmness of his decision not to take the escalator ever, and the skill with which he summed up in just a few words, he who had spent most of his life bent over a ream of writing paper, everything that he had become and everything you represented. But you know as well as I do that, that to claim to get inside a man's head, first you have to really know him, to absorb all of the lives he has lived and all of his struggles and all of his ghosts. And believe me, if I start there, if I play the dad card already, I'll never get around to telling you what I'm about to tell you. Let's think some more about the impact of that sentence, escalators are for them. That was part of what made me decide to tell this story, even without knowing where to begin. All I know is that these pages won't be linear. Talking about the present means I have to go deep into the past to cross borders and scale mountains and go back to that lake so enormous they call it a sea. I have to let myself be guided by the flow of the images and free associations, the natural fits and starts, the hollows and bumps carved into my memories by time. But the truth of memory is strange, isn't it? Our memories select, eliminate, exaggerate, minimize, glorify, denigrate. They create their own versions of events and serve up their own reality. Disparate, but cohesive. Imperfect, yet sincere. In any case, my memory is so crammed with stories and lies and languages and illusions and lives marked by exile and death, death and exile, that I don't even really know how to untangle the threads anymore. Some of you might already be aware of me. You might remember the bloody incident that happened in Paris in the 13th arrondissement on March 11th, 1994. It was the lead story on the 8 o'clock news on France 2. All the next day's newspapers were full of it, of articles stuffed with falsehoods and plastered with pictures of us with black rectangles blacking out our eyes. You might have seen me in one of those pictures. Maybe you followed the case. I mean, I could have led with that, you know, instead of talking about escalators. I could have opened with the story of what we call the event in our family, but I can't, not yet. For now, all you need to know is it's January 19th at 10 past 10 in the morning, and I'm writing, and I'm waiting. I want to begin our discussion, and I, and I, and I just want to remind our panelists that for this next period of discussion, um, I want it to be fairly freewheeling. If I ask a question of Negar, and um, Negar answers, and Akweke, you think of something, jump in. Same with you, Kanshana. Um, I'd love to for us each. I told them before we began, this should be like a, a really fun dinner party, but without the food, <laughs> and which is not so great. But anyway, <laughs> we'll start. Look, I'm going to start where we where we ended with with um, Negar, and I want to ask you. Um, Explain the title of the book, Disoriental. I mean, obviously, at the, the the foundation of this is a a a journey and a passage from east to west. But explain the the, the various meanings of disoriental. What you were trying to get at with this with this title. Écoutez, le le titre est, précède en fait le roman d'une certaine manière parce que le titre vient d'une d'une réflexion que je me faisais de moi-même à moi-même à chaque fois que 
on me voyait ici ou là, euh, en France, en Belgique, où j'ai vécu pas mal de temps parce que j'ai fait euh, mes études là-bas. Voilà, donc euh, on ne savait pas trop comment me situer sur la carte du monde parce que physiquement, on n'arrivait pas à me dire que... En, en France, il faut dire aussi que l'oriental, c'est souvent le maghrébin, l'africain du Nord. Donc euh, voilà, et alors in, in fine, on me disait « t'es oriental hein, », et, euh, et moi-même, parce que c'est quand même vaste l'Orient, et moi-même je me disais, euh, je, dis, je dis oui, je suis oriental, parce que je ne savais pas trop quoi répondre, mais, mais je, ça m'a toujours interrogée de savoir qui on est alors qu'on ne vit pas là où on, on, est, on a, on a l'étiquette, j'allais dire. C'est-à-dire être iranien en dehors de l'Iran, être oriental en dehors de l'Orient, Qu'est-ce que cela peut signifier alors que le matin, on se réveille comme n'importe quel Français ou Américain, on, on vit sa vie comme n'importe quel Français américain Donc, quand on me posait cette question dans ma tête, je disais, je suis désorientale, en fait. Donc, euh, mais en, me, en rigolant de moi-même, hein, <rire> c'était un, un joke entre moi et moi. Et puis, bon, quand, quand j'écris le livre, c'était le titre d'un chapitre. Et euh, le, au moment où il fallut choisir un titre, avec l'éditrice, on s'est dit euh, désorientale. Moi, parce que, voilà, c'est entre l'Orient et l'Occident, et elle, parce que le personnage principal, Kinya, est assez désorienté, est assez euh, perdu dans sa vie, dans son errance à travers l'Europe. Et il y avait dans, 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 dans l'esprit de Sandrine Thévenet, l'éditrice, ce qu'il n'y avait pas dans le mien, c'est-à-dire la désorientation en plus du personnage. Um, the title of the book actually preceded the book itself. Um, it was an idea that I had really thought about in relation to myself because it was a question of how did people see me? How, how did they look? Where did they position me when they saw me? Um, I lived in France. I, did, I studied in Belgium. And bo in both of those places, very often people would come and they would ask me where I was from. Um, and they would identify me as being Oriental, Eastern. And That term really encompasses a broad range of people. It, it, in France, very often it means um, North African, but it can also be Arab, it can also be Asian. And so um, it was really a question of who are you? And I began to think of that in terms of myself. Who, who am I? How am I Iranian if I'm outside Iran? How am I French if I am outside of France? Um, and so. I really decided when people would ask me that question to simply reply, I'm désoriental, disoriental rather than oriental. Um, but the title itself, it really came about, it was originally the title of just one of the chapters in the book. And with my editor, um, she really felt that because the main character in the book is really somebody who is disoriented. She really needs to find herself. She's looking for her place. So that désorienté took on a separate meaning, meaning disoriented in her case. So that was really how we arrived at the title. Akwege, could you speak a bit about, we're, we're, are, we're already into the, I think, the crux of this whole session about this idea of, of identity. We talked about all the different transitions and changes that we might be talking about this afternoon in our introduction, but we're already into this idea of, of the challenge of identity when somebody crosses borders, Um, but there are, of course, other ways that identity is challenged or there's dissonance or there's a battle for identity. Um, the main character of your book, Ada, is a, a character who was born fractured into many selves and there are many people occupying 
this individual, occupying the conscience of this individual, um, different cells and different spirits. I wonder if you can talk about um, the, um, the disorientale <laughs> of, of, of your own character and, and um, uh, w just ex explain a little bit more, um, maybe as a prelude to that, um, the term okbanje, which, which you talked about before your reading, um, w what exactly that is and how that relates to your character. So my character, Ada, her main problem in the book, her main displacement, is that she's human, is that she's embodied, that she has a body. When she's born, the synchronization that's meant to happen between spirit and flesh doesn't quite occur. And Obanje is an entity that is kind of translated to as a spirit child um, or as a spirit that's trapped in human form. The most popular example of one in literature is in Achebe's Things Fall Apart, where the main character has a daughter who's Obanje. And essentially, they're entities that are born to die. They're not meant to stay very long as humans. They're meant to return to the spirit world. They have a cohort in the spirit world, siblings of sorts. Um, and they have a pact with this cohort that they're meant to return. So they show up, they live for a little bit, they die, they come back and do it all over again. The point is really to torture the mother. They're kind of spiritual trolls, really. Um, <laughs> and so in, in this case, this character does not die and then kind of ends up in this space where she's alive when she's not supposed to be and is having to deal with the constraints of flesh, is having to deal with the traumas that come when you're inhabiting flesh and and as a result, she develops separate selves in her head to kind of cope with all of this. All the different selves are also her. Um, and they are spirits only in the sense that she is also a spirit. A couple of readings of the book, some people had kind of seen it as like spirits possessing a human, um, which isn't entirely accurate. She just exists in this space that is very shaky between flesh, between spirit, and a lot of the things that happen to her are just are symptoms of inhabiting that space because there's, um, there's naturally the, a dissonance that comes with that. There's all the disorientation that comes with that. And what's the second part of the question? I'm trying uh, to uh, well I can continue with that because I, I, I we're obviously going to be talking about a lot of dualities yes. here. And I think it's very important what you just said about um, our misunderstanding or, I mean, I can't even, I don't think I've got the equipment to articulate, <laughs> you know, the, the, the true identity question about Ad, um, Ada in the book um, because I'm approaching it from a very Western kind of mindset of, mm. of, of the duality. It's either this or that. But it's, 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 it's a third space. It's a third or it's, how would you describe it? You just said it's neither physical nor spirit it's it's both and it's neither both. so one of the <coughs> one of the concepts that i've been working a lot around with the book and some other work that i'm making is this idea of multiple realities and the idea that multiple realities can coexist at the same time and what happened so the reason why there's not a lot of people talking about obanje or talking about things like that and when i wrote the book i really wanted to 
center it in, in this reality and acknowledge it as something that is real. The only reason why it's considered not real, the only reason why it's considered perhaps superstition or speculative fiction or metaphor or literary conceit is because we got colonized. And a bunch of people showed up and said, hey, everything you've believed for centuries and generations is fake news. We are coming with the one true reality that you should now adopt or else. And that just continued from there. So there's this idea, I think, about a singular dominant reality that I think is very Western, where it's like, you know, it's either this or that. Like, both can't exist at the same time. It kind of becomes a bit of an issue. And and with the book, I wanted to center it in another reality that isn't mutually exclusive to other ones. It's just there as well. I've had a couple of conversations where people are like, oh, well, sh what she's going through, you know, mental illness, it's dissociative identity disorder, this and that. Um, but that's not like the crux of her thing. She's embodied, that's a problem. These other things happen as a result of that. And the decision to kind of censor this story in this reality, one of the things I thought about was a Toni Morrison quote in an interview she gave after she won the Nobel Prize, where she said of her work, I stood at the edge, I stood at the borders, I claimed it as center, and I let the rest of the world move over. And, and for me, this idea of multiple realities, this idea of different people being able to have different ways of being is something that is very much existing on the edge. So much of what's happening in the world today, I feel, is as a result of people insisting that there can only be one dominant reality. And if you have people who are inhabiting multiple ones, then you can kill them or bomb them or deport them, or you can just erase them because the best way to erase another reality is to destroy the people who are inhabiting it. Remarkable. Um, Kanchana, tell us, you write about um, the, the uh, memory, and memory and loss. Mm -hmm. Now, your, your own transitions have been yeah. from, from um, Chennai to the West, to, to Australia, to Nigeria, and now to the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want you to talk, we're, we're going to transition to, um, <laughs> in our own conversation, um, a, a slightly different plane here to talk about the um, the role that time and memory and the sense of loss plays in somebody who has gone through these physical and cultural transitions um, from one place mm -hmm. to the next. Um, yeah, uh, my own transition, as you said, has uh, been from Asia to Africa, but through the channels of the Western world and then back in the United States. And I'm also exploring the, the notion and the idea of identity, uh, always with, the, uh, with home and belonging in the background, tracing, um, drawing back uh, in memory to a place called home and going through these various locations and this is what I'll, I write about in both my fiction and my creative nonfiction. And in the in Soulmates, I uh, it's my negotiation with the Nigerian culture, which is uh, at the crux of uh, of of that book, and looking at women, um, women's identities, and how women negotiate their spaces, 
so writing is a sort of lens through which I see the other culture. And I think I, again, I'm in, in that third space uh, where, which I described in the creative nonfiction as uh, walking the tightrope or being in that narrow space that is different and has a unique angle of vision from uh, a visitor to the country or an expatriate who has their own support systems and their concerns are more the landscape, uh, the people, the it's an entirely different view that the expatriate has. And the same thing with uh, the owners of the culture, the Nigerians, whose preoccupations are much more panoramic and broader, and they are looking at different issues concerning the country and the politics of the country. Um, I am in that interstitial space as an insider and as an outsider. This is how I see myself. Uh, finding my way into the crevices of the culture as an insider, because I have a privileged access as having been married into the culture and having lived for a very long time and being accepted as being part of the culture. But at the same time, facing rejection, alienation, estrangement, uh, and being on the outside. Uh, it is a simultaneous uh, thing that happens in the novel and in the short stories and in my writing as I continue to explore this space that is an interstitial space. And so would you, would you say that that interstitial space, where, where do you come down in terms of it? Um, is it? Is it more liberating or is it more oppressive? Is it something that you exist in, in you know, in equal measure, or? Yeah. It, it is a very liberating space. Uh, and I adopt, uh, not consciously, but unconsciously, various strategies, I think, as a, a person in this space, uh, one of which is the idea of wearing a mask. And uh, a mask or wearing a veil, this is something that also explore in the novels, which you do unconsciously. And uh, clothes, I believe, are masks. So in the Nigerian culture, once I have transformed myself by wearing the Nigerian outfits with their head tie or their wrappers and their, uh, like the woman that is described uh, in the little piece that I read where she wears the lace wrapper but it is her flesh is unaccustomed to that and her heels bleed from the lace that is cutting into the soles of her feet. Uh, in the same way, you wear these outfits and you it is a mask, it is a veil behind which you can hide. You can see without being seen. So that is why it is a liberating space, I think. And I've also written uh, a short piece about it in um, uh, about being in the United States. Uh, here again, uh, wearing the Western clothing, I said briefly, I wear trousers and layers of thermal clothing, a long sleeve blouse, sweater, and gloves. The winter coat and boots are additional baggage I carry around. 
When I look in the mirror, I see a woman that is not me. No bindi on my forehead, something I have worn as a child. No gold bangles or diamond earrings. These were markers that set me apart as an Asian in America with all the stereotypical ethnic features. I dispense with my singularity and opt for the bare forehead. I cut my hair short for anonymity. I acquire the monochromatic immigrant look like thousands of people in the United States. My cap completes the masquerade. I dissolve into a speck among the numerous dots that make up the picture of multicultural America. This is me, rebranded, I say to myself, in grays and browns and black. So this is a liberating space to be behind uh, this mask, this veil, and this is also a way in which I explore my identity in the interstitial space. That's brilliant. Um, Negar, you write, uh, well, Kimia, in, um, Kimia Sato in the book says um, about integration and disintegration. He says, because to integrate into culture, I can tell you that you have to disintegrate first. So to integrate, you have to disintegrate, at least partially from your own. You have to separate, detach, dissociate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, that idea of the need to disintegrate in order to integrate. And then I wonder if you could return to some of the things that Kanshana was just saying and, and, and tell us whether these, um, the culture that you carry in memory or in your identity in this new culture, if, that's, if there are modes of liberation or modes of, of, of liberal feeling in that. Cette idée d'intégration et de désintégration vient euh, en premier de, de cette, euh, je dirais, euh, obligation qu'on pose aux étrangers de s'intégrer. Et, euh, et si j'ai écrit cette phrase, c'est parce que j'ai souvent en tête ce mot qu'on dit aux étrangers, euh, surtout on, on, on leur dit l'inverse, c'est-à-dire vous n'êtes pas assez intégré, on ne dit pas il faut s'intégrer. On le dit aussi, mais on dit souvent vous n'êtes pas assez intégré. Et on leur, on leur dit jamais comment il faut s'intégrer. Parce qu'on oublie très souvent que la personne qui vient, même s'il est étranger, euh, même s'il est démuni, il est quand même un être humain à part entière, à, avec sa mémoire, avec ses habitudes, avec ses, euh, ses, ses us, ses coutumes, avec tout son pays, et, et presque, j'allais dire, sa mémoire est totalement pleine euh, de, de, de tout ce qu'elle est, cette personne. Donc on dit d'un coup à ces gens, intégrez-vous, mais comment on fait À quel moment et comment Quelle est la recette de ça Donc on ne leur dit jamais, il faut se désintégrer, parce qu'il y a quelque chose de... C'est-à-dire enlever un peu, vider un peu de soi, s'alléger un peu. Euh, parce que c'est une idée qui n'est pas très politiquement correcte de dire aux gens, il faut laisser derrière vous pour prendre. On leur dit, il faut prendre, mais voilà. Donc il y a toujours un conflit qui se passe entre ces gens-là dont je fais partie où j'ai fait partie, je dis mais comment on fait Et eux qui ne veulent pas vous donner la recette ou une explication à ça, parce que ça ne se fait pas. Au contraire, on vous dit c'est très bien ce que tu es, ton identité est précieuse, il faut le garder, il ne faut pas que tu oublies quoi que ce soit de ce que tu es. Mais alors comment on fait Voilà, donc c'était... I think this whole idea of um, disintegration and integration really comes from a sense that I had that Many foreigners have are, are an obligation is imposed on them to integrate, to assimilate into um, the new 
the new place where they are. Um, and they are oftentimes criticized for not being assimilated enough, not being integrated enough into the new, the new culture. But the problem is that although this is something that they are asking us to do and they want us to do, they never explain to us how we're supposed to do this. So they sometimes forget that people who come from someplace else, um, when they arrive, whether they're, they're all, you know, just with the shirts on their backs or, or with you know, everything, they, these are human beings with their own memories, their own culture, um, their, own, their own selves. And how are those things going to adapt to the new place? And when are they going to adapt? Is it something that will happen immediately? Is it over the course of time? And there's always this pressure, and yet, again, there's never any explanation of how this is to be achieved. And so I understood that you really have to be able to get rid of some of the things that you come with, that you arrive with, in order to be able to achieve that integration um, and, and to gain something from the new, from the new place where you are. Um, and leave something behind. But once again, we're still never told exactly how, it's how to do it. No recipe provided. So these, these transitions um, um, can be extraordinarily painful, and I, and I, and I want to return now to um, Akweke's story and Akweke's book, um, the, the, the story of Ada. Um, there's a point at which, um, again, I can't help but think of these in terms of of, of both from a Western perspective and from the traditional um, African Igbo cultural perspective that you're, that, that, that you're giving us. But um, there's a succession of, um, of, to put it in the Igbo cultural terms, the need to provide blood to the spirit. Um, the, the, the spirit becomes very hungry for blood um, and there's a series of cuttings and physical um, sort of um, things that Ada, Ada does to herself. Um, and this goes, as the story progresses, and after she goes to the United States into a um, even more dramatic physical transformation that she undertakes with her body, with her physical self. I wonder if you could talk, maybe talk about the idea that we've been talking about in terms of integration and disintegration and talk about that in the terms of the character of Edda and the journey that she goes on. Yeah, so um, one of the things that I, that I do want to point out is that things that she does are not necessarily always specifically because she's Anabanje, like in the way that it's like tied to Igbo cultural, um, Igbo traditions, just in the same way like if you had a character that was black, it doesn't mean that everything she does is because she's black. <laughs> um, it's just a thing that that character is doing. Um, and so in the case of Deada, one of the things that she's, again, the main thing she's dealing with is embodiment. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to have the reader be able to see in close detail how painful embodiment is for her, uh, how much suffering it comes with. and. And so there are different ways in which she tries to reconcile this dissonance. And I think it ties a lot into the disintegration um, thing because she attempts to disintegrate herself. And when that doesn't work, 
at a later point, the solution really becomes to, like part of the journey is if you can't disintegrate yourself in order to fit into this reality, if you can't, if pretending to be human, if trying to, you know, wear the clothes, so to speak, wear the appropriate mask, if none of that is, is working, part of the journey becomes to disintegrate the outside reality and to kind of reach a point where for her, instead of channeling all of that into trying to crush herself, she kind of crushes everything else. And it's like, well, this is not, the outside world is not necessarily real. And to accept that perhaps her default positioning as the one that is, that is correct, even if it's seen as madness, even if it's seen as whatever it's seen as. And I think one of telling a story from that perspective with a character that makes a choice like that um, really had an impact, I think, when I started talking about the book because then to it's part of that thing of like standing at that center and refusing to move from it, standing at that center where you know, she goes through a lot of the book thinking that she's crazy and that there's something wrong with her and she goes to therapy and she tries to figure out all these ways to disintegrate what's happening and make it integrate into what the rest of the world is telling her that it should be, um, and none of that really works. And so to, to stand in, I think for people who think that only one thing can be real at any given time, to stand in a place and say, no, my, my thing is real, people view it as like you're trying to kind of destroy their world because again, it's that kind of like zero something. Um, and so in talking, in talking about the book, I came across, I think, a lot of, a lot of resistance to, because it's like, oh, your, this story is refusing to integrate, right? Like, this story should be a story about mental illness. It should be a story that is, that assimilates into this narrative, like if the story itself is an immigrant, it's refusing to assimilate. It's saying, no, I'm staying in this indigenous culture and I'm rooting myself in that and I'm not going to wear the mask and I'm not going to put on the clothes and I'm just going to be how I am in this way. And, and that is part, that is also, that's the journey that like Ada has through the book and that's also, interestingly enough, the journey that the book has in the world. Great, that's great. So, uh, did you want to say something? Yeah, just to come into the conversation with, uh, sorry, come into the conversation with uh, the disintegration and then reintegration. I think I also see the uh, uh, this whole process um, of, of liminal spaces as a sort of epiphanic and uh, the short story itself as an epiphany, a moment of clarity when you have gone through that space and then you arrive at a moment of clarity. And uh, with, with my own writing, uh, it starts with uh, certain motives. Uh, I look at certain motives and carry around those motives with me for a while until I can locate them uh, in a context. And that is when the story begins to uh, take shape. And sometimes it is like a, a fleeting scene from a train window, uh, something that captures your attention, but is a, is a very small space that I'm exploring um, in my work. 
um, sometimes they are very small domestic scenes and uh, where there is a lot that is going on, uh, things that are unspoken. Uh, they are like uh, tableaus uh, where people are moving around silently, but there is tension. And these are the sort of things that I think I'm looking at. Um, we're only just scratching the surface of all the liminalities that permeate all three of your, your, your writings. I am going to um, open up for audience questions. So if you have a question, I believe we're going to illuminate the microphone soon so that you can see it. It'll be over um, to my left, to your right, um, there in about the middle area of the audience. So if you want to um, ask a question of one, two, or all three of these writers, go and um, line up at the microphone, and I will see you, and um, you'll have your moment. Um, before we do that, um, I just got a, a question for um, uh, we just wanted to quickly, if it, the three of you can talk about the you know the idea of time, and and and, and time, and again and and memory, and and the role that that plays um, both in all of these transitions. I I, I think um, I think there's a if if you want to say something, go ahead. Uh, I think I see uh, memory as uh, uh, as Toni Morrison says. Uh, she calls it rememory, uh, revisioning, uh, going back into the past and recollecting, but also revisioning. And this is uh, something that I have been exploring in the writing. And in, in Negar, there's a, a passage in the book which says, "I'm always chasing after the present, but the present doesn't exist." It's only an intermission, a temporary respite, which might at any moment be swept away, destroyed, pulverized by the escaped gins of the past. And the book is so much. I mean, this this is this character, this main character, is um, a, a kind of Shahrazad um, that, that she's been compared to, telling stories of the past and the family of the past. And I think that's true of a lot of immigrant experience of. Um, that the present that they're faced with is not something that they can relate to. They're calling the past. Can you say? Oui, d'ailleurs, c'est assez troublant parce que c'est vrai que ça, ça crée une certaine différence, mais presque temporelle, entre les exilés ou les, les immigrés et, et les autres. Parce que c'est vrai que avoir laissé derrière soi et avoir perdu, euh, et ce qu'on a perdu n'est pas perdu. Et toute la complexité et tout le paradoxe et toute la tristesse peut-être de ce qu'on vit en tant qu'exilé là, c'est que nous on l'a perdu, mais il n'est pas perdu. Il est quelque part, les gens vivent, les gens existent, vont, viennent, travaillent, donc c'est ailleurs qu'on a perdu. Et ces gens-là nous visitent régulièrement à travers plein plein de choses et donc on est toujours, notre présent est toujours à un moment donné habité par ce qui pour nous est le passé, mais que pour les autres est le présent. Et c'est ça qui est très troublant, c'est qu'en tant qu'exilé, on est toujours au milieu, puisque les gens en face de nous qui ne sont pas exilés ont un présent et un futur. Ceux qu'on a laissés derrière, ils ont aussi leur présent, parce que malgré toutes les souffrances qu'ils vivent dans ces pays en guerre, euh, euh, voilà, bombardés régulièrement, et ça, ils ont un présent. Euh, et c'est nous qui vivons entre ces deux, ces, ces deux masses de personnes avec ce temps qui nous est très particulier où euh, on ne sait pas trop est-ce que l'avenir existe sans eux avec eux, est-ce que le passé je peux l'oublier, les laisser derrière moi et avancer, voilà. 
I think it's something that's really rather disturbing because there's a sort of temporal distancing that takes place with um, four immigrants, um, four exiles, because there's almost as though they have a sense of loss, but what is lost really isn't lost. It's still there. It's what they left behind, but there's a feeling that it's lost, but it's still there. Those people you left behind, they're still there. Those things are still happening, and it's almost a paradox of what exile is. And what is lost is elsewhere. And for those who are in exile or, or immigrants, very often they have no present. There's a present that exists for the people who are in the new place because they go about their business every day, they do, you know, go to work, do whatever they have. There's also the present, the present for the people that have been left behind in the other place because whether they're in a situation of war or being bombed or having to deal with you know, daily hardships, they're still dealing with things on, a, on, a, on the basis of being in the present. But for the immigrant and the exile, they're in a sort of very strange place temporally because they're not exactly in the present. And they're living more rem by remembering their past than they are experiencing the present that is in those two locations. Akweke, is there a temporal aspect um, with with fresh water? That um, yeah, I think I read. I go on Goodreads and I look into reader reviews <laughs> 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 because I love them. <laughs> it's like I'm never going to experience the book as just a reader, so it's very helpful when people take the time to like read reviews, and I appreciate it a lot because I do not even do that for books I love. <laughs> so, um, and one of the things that a couple of people- You have a lot of hits on Goodreads. A lot of-, a lot of um a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's fun. <laughs> um, one of the things that people said was that the the book was like very nonlinear, which was very surprising to me because I thought it was linear. And then I actually <laughs> looked at it and I was like, oh, I okay, it. I see what you're saying. This is not, I guess, moving. But to me, it was moving forward. I was like, she was a baby, and then she got older. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it turns out there was a lot of folding that was happening <laughs> in the middle that I was kind of skipping. And, and one of the things about the book is that the way that it's told mirrors what's happening, in, and or like more, more like depicts what's happening in the Ada's mind. So part of the folding that happens in the storytelling is a folding that happens in her mind where at certain, at different points in, in her life due to trauma, she kind of just like sections off the past and it's like hitting a reset button. And so memory is like a really interesting thing in the book because she doesn't remember a lot of things um, or rather she can remember the like the facts about it, but there's a lack of emotional connection. It's like you just have a lot of data stored in your head that feels like it happened to somebody else. Um, and so those sectionings in that case, are uh, they're a form of protection, I think. And I think this is something that happens a lot um, for people in general, where that hitting the reset button, that erasing a place or a time period that has happened before. I remember recently I went back home to Nigeria and we were buying like roasted corn off the side of the road. And I had this really jarring moment because this, the road we were on was a road that my little sister had been in a car accident on like 20 years ago. And I got really upset because I was like, this road doesn't exist. And because to me, the road doesn't exist. Like I had reset since then. It was not a real place. It was not a real road. And to be confronted by something that no longer existed 
in my head <laughs> was very upsetting um, because that folding had had happened, and so there was this there was this sense of wrongness with time, like time was doing something that it shouldn't be doing. I had a feeling similar to that when I went to Cuba, um, and and everyone was like very like it was like romanticized. People romanticize it a lot, and and the whole time I was just there, I was like, oh no, time folded in a very weird way here, and I can't believe that no one is feeling it. Like it feels so weird. It felt very uncomfortable because I was like, time is doing like funky things in here, <laughs> um, and so I think there's there's a thing about place and time and memory and what the dissonance is like when, when time is moving differently for people and what it is to enter those spaces where time has decided to do something else and you come in with like how time has been moving for you and it doesn't quite match up and the, like what a, lim what a liminal space that in and of itself is. And of course nonlinearity is a strategy that you employ in uh, Disoriental as well. Negar, can you talk a little bit about that as a strategy? Absolutely because not. for a, for a, for a, you know the novel, I guess the contemporary moment of the novel is a lot of doctor's visits <laughs> to or a lot of visits <laughs> to a fertility clinic. So but the story of the book takes us right. back in time and forward in just in, in an extraordinary number of different directions. Absolutely. C'est les couches du temps qui se succèdent parce que c'est vrai que la on ne peut pas se souvenir de façon linéaire, c'est pas possible. Après, il, va il faut essayer de traduire en écriture ce que fait la mémoire. Et la mémoire est... Donc, dans l'extrait que j'ai lu, voilà, la mémoire fait plein de choses, ça grossit, ça rétrécit. C'est un, un peu Alice au Pays des Merveilles qui grossit, qui rétrécit, euh, qui trouve... Voilà, invente des fictions, invente des histoires. Et quand, ça, quand elles s'arrêtent, quand on ne se souvient plus, eh ben, on brode, on, a, on invente soi-même des histoires, etc. Et ce travail de mémoire est totalement... Euh, archaïque, euh, anarchique, j'allais dire. C'est-à-dire, vous, vous essayez de vous souvenir de, de quelqu'un euh, et quelqu'un d'autre vient, voilà, et vous prenez un autre fil. Vous essayez de vous souvenir d'un lieu et c'est un autre lieu qui vient dans un autre moment très ancien. Et ce travail d'auteur, ou moi dans ce livre, en tout cas, c'est essayer de capter tout ça et d'essayer de le rendre vivant à travers le livre et de ne pas essayer de réduire et de maintenir, de diminuer euh, cette force de mémoire qui, est, qui, qui arrive comme un flux extraordinaire dans votre tête et qui vous emporte. Je pense que dans mon livre, il y a des layers de temps qui sont là. Et je pense que une partie de la raison est que quand vous essayez de remettre le passé, vous ne vous souvenez pas nécessairement le passé d'une façon linéaire. And so my idea was, how do I translate that nature, that intrinsic nature of, of memory, into something written? How do I, I convey that in writing? It's almost like if you think of Alice in Wonderland, where at some times she becomes very, very small, and then at another time she becomes very, very large. There are certain things in your memory that suddenly become more prominent or less prominent. Or you may suddenly think of something and you, you want to focus on one individual and then it leads you to somebody else and you begin to follow that thread. Or you think of one place and it brings you someplace else in your memory. So it's a very anarchic kind of situation in your memory. And what I wanted to do in, the, in, in writing it was to really convey that, that living nature of memory, that anarchic nature of memory, to the people who were reading the book and not to present it in a linear way, one, two, three, four. Now I'm going to do a really fast, like a complete and dramatic change of topic. 
I'm going to talk about motherhood. And, beca because, and, and wha what I'm reminded about is, uh, of course, in, is the visits to the fertility clinic and the role that yes. motherhood plays in, in, in your book. And I want to make a, a slight connection to the, um, uh, the, the role that motherhood plays in a number of the stories in Soulmate Panchana, um, particularly, of course, Blessing in Disguise and, and, and Womanhood. Because, of course, pregnancy is probably the ultimate or one of the ultimate liminal states, right? This is a, a, a state of transition. And, of course, a lot of traditional cultures have rituals based around the idea of pregnancy being a, you know, this period of transition, this, this period of liminality. Um, but I want to go specifically to the character um, in Blessing in Disguise, and she talks about um, um, menopause on the other, s the, the other side of that and the yeah. idea of being free of the menace of being a woman. I just yeah. wonder if you could talk um, a little bit about that. Yes, in that um, story and in some other stories, besides uh, motherhood, I also look at uh, polygamy, uh, the idea of... Uh, coming from a monogamous culture, the Indian culture, was one of those things that really grabbed my attention about the Nigerian culture, uh, polygamy. And uh, motherhood is something that uh, uh, many Nigerian women writers have also written about. Uh, the fact, the pressures that a woman uh, goes through, the anxiety of motherhood, that if you are not a mother, you are in a non-existent space, as it were. So uh, that is something that the, the character in, the, in that particular story experiences. And the fact that uh, her husband in that story is taking on a young second wife, and she's at the wedding. And uh, the, uh, the rationale for that is that it is a traditional a requirement. He's a chief, and there are some issues concerning uh, property and all that inheritance, and which could only be solved by marrying a younger wife and having children, particularly boys. And uh, this particular character, uh, the first wife, is feels stripped of her role, not only as a woman, uh, but she has also had children but her children are abroad, and uh, the husband wants children who are Nigerian-based and who are children who will take over from him. And uh, so there is that uh, uh, kind of uh, space there and an issue that she has to deal with, and she talks about her being stripped of her role as a woman and as a mother. It is as if with the click of the computer mouse, she becomes a sort of neutral gender, <laughs> as it were. And Akweke, do you want to talk a bit about the, the transition of gender um, that is sort of at the core of, uh, of Freshwater in the story of Ada? Um, actually, I was thinking more about like how motherhood plays in with like Ada's character. And what it made me think of was there's this, so, there's this thing with Obanje where in in Igbo tradition there's a belief in reincarnation and there's a belief in a in a lineage. So you basically get born over and over into the same like family line of human souls, I guess, or spirits. And Obanje are considered intruders because they're they're not part of that lineage. They kind of come in from the side and they intrude on it. And so when you have an Obanje child, 
it's not really a child of that lineage, it's just a stranger that's kind of, that's kind of come in. I did a lot of research when writing Freshwater and one of the things that was really interesting because a lot of Abanje are like Kota's girls um, is that they can't become mothers because if they do, they've contributed to that human line. And so when they die, instead of their spirit or their soul going back to the Obanje like cohort, they now become part of the human line. So for an Obanje, like pregnancy and becoming a mother transitions them from Obanje to human. And that is the thing that kind of moves them over to the other side. So most people kind of know Obanje as dying when they're young, um, but for those who reach adulthood, they usually die like right after they get married. They try to time it for when it will cause the most pain. Um, <laughs> trolls. <laughs> and, and right before it's possible for them to become mothers. And for me, that was just fascinating because it was like a different, it was a different view of like motherhood and pregnancy, like you were saying, as a transition and between like spirit and flesh in a way that I hadn't encountered until until I was doing research for the book. Um, so now I think we'll have our final readings, if um, if, if you're ready. Um, the time has gone past very quickly. Um, Negar, if you'd like to um, lead off the, the, the final reading. Pourtant, il y eut des moments dans ma vie, des séquences plus ou moins importantes, où j'aurais fait n'importe quoi pour ne pas être celle que je suis. J'ai changé de pays et de langue, je me suis inventé d'autres passés, d'autres identités. J'ai lutté, oh oui, j'ai lutté contre ce vent impétueux qui s'est levé il y a très longtemps dans une province reculée de la Perse, nommée Mausandaron, chargée de morts et de naissances, de gènes récessifs et dominants, de coups d'État et de révolution, et qui, à chacune de mes tentatives pour lui échapper, m'a agrippé au col et remise à ma place. Pour que vous compreniez ce que je raconte, il faut que je rembobine et reparte au début, vous faire entendre comme je l'entends moi-même en ce moment, tandis qu'une infirmière nous jette un œil et s'éloigne indifférente. La voix de, oncle de mon oncle Sader Sadr, surnommé oncle numéro 2, une voix en mode mineur, aussi suave qu'une clarinette, racontant ce que nous appelions entre nous la fameuse histoire d'oncle numéro 2. Depuis le début de l'après-midi, le vent sifflait si fort qu'il aurait dû tout aussi bien annoncer la fin du monde. De mémoire de Mazandaroni, on n'avait pas connu un tel déchaînement depuis l'invasion des Mongols. Et encore, à l'époque, ce que les habitants de Mazandaron avaient pris pour une tempête n'était autre que le souffle dévastateur précédant la horde sanguinaire de Gengis Khan. Quoi qu'il en soit, ce vent mordant qui soufflait depuis les plaines de gelée de Russie ne présageait rien de bon. Imaginez maintenant l'incroyable domaine de votre arrière-grand-père, Montaz et Molmolk. Deux imposantes bâtisses d'une soixantaine de chambres chacune, des dépendances, des salles d'armes, des cuisines, des salons de réception, des écuries pleines de chevaux. Le tout niché au cœur du cœur de la forêt en contrebas des montagnes d'Alboz. Pas moins de 268 âmes vivaient là, sous la responsabilité de Montaz et Molmolk. Ce jour de février 1896, un, après un samedi, me semble-t-il, il avait donné l'ordre de galfeutrer portes et fenêtres et de rester enfermé jusqu'à ce que le monde retrouve un semblant de calme. Combien de temps cette maudite tempête 
allait-elle durer Dans quel état allait-il récupérer ses terres Depuis des heures, ces questions et beaucoup d'autres toujours lupinaient Montaz et Molmolk dont l'humeur était aussi sombre que le ciel. Il habitait la bâtisse principale, le Burouni, avec 123 hommes armés chargés de la protection de ses terres et une dizaine de jeunes garçons pour les servir. Quoique dressé juste en face du Birouni, de l'autre côté de la cour intérieure, l'autre bâtisse, l'Andaruni, semblait aussi lointaine et insondable que la terre promise. Vivaient là les 52 épouses de Montazemolmolk, venues des quatre coins du pays, ses 28 enfants et une vingtaine de servantes. Il était le seul homme à pouvoir y pénétrer, le seul à connaître l'odeur lourde des parfums et des disputes qui stagnaient dans l'air glacé, les dédales obscures, les portes entrouvertes. Le froissement des tissus, la sensation grisante d'être attendu, désiré, la longueur des corps qui... Allons, allons, vous avez très bien compris ce que je veux dire. Pourtant, toutes ces nuits passées dans ce lieu, qu'il avait pour ainsi dire peuplé lui-même, n'avaient pas guéri votre arrière-grand-père de l'impression amère de sa réalité y échappée. L'Andalouni restait un territoire mystérieux et fou, une énigme. Ce jour-là, ce jour où la terre de Manzandalone semblait réduite à un caillou dans la main de Dieu, Montazemolmok redoupé par-dessus tout, tout, que les femmes profitent de l'obscurité et du désastre pour comploter contre lui. Après tout, comment savoir ce qui se mijotait dans le ventre d'une femme délaissée Comment être sûr de sa loyauté, sa sincérité, son amour Plus le temps passait, le nombre de femmes augmentait, plus il sentait contre ses reins. Dès l'instant, il posait le pied sur la première marche de l'escalier, en colimaçon qui menait aux chambres, la lame aiguisée de la jalousie, prête à s'enfoncer dans ses entrailles. Ce n'est pas comme si ce drame humiliant, sans doute fomenté par Torgal Khanoum, n'avait pas eu lieu. Targal Khanoum, autrefois sa préférée, était à l'origine d'une épidémie de démangeaison qui s'était emparée de l'intimité des femmes et avait, mis sa course perfide, avait fini sa course perfide dans l'entrejambe de Montazemolmolk. Des médecins étaient venus de la ville, des portes avaient claqué. Des objets s'étaient fracassés dans la cour, des touffes de cheveux avaient été arrachées, des cris avaient franchi les montagnes, le déshonneur avait envahi le domaine. C'est à ce moment-là que Montazemolmok aurait voulu que ce satané vent souffle, balaye ces maudites femmes de la surface de la terre et emporte toute cette infamie. Enfin ça, c'est une autre histoire. But there have been moments in my life, more or less important sequences of events, when I would have done anything to be something other than what I am. I've changed countries and languages. I've invented other pasts and other identities for myself. I fought, oh yes, I fought against that impetuous wind that rose a long time ago in a far-flung Persian province called Mazandaran, laden with deaths and births, recessive and dominant genes, coup d'etat and revolutions. And every time I've tried to escape it, it has grasped me by the scruff of the neck and pulled me back in. For you to understand what I'm telling you, I have to rewind and start again from the beginning. I have to make you hear, like I can hear it myself right now as a nurse glances at me indifferently and moves away, the voice of my uncle Sadek Sadar, nicknamed Uncle Number Two. It's a voice in a minor key, smooth as a clarinet, telling what we used to refer to amongst ourselves as Uncle Number Two's famous story. Since early that afternoon, the wind had been blowing so hard that it might just as well have been announcing the end of the world. There hadn't been such a tempest in Mazandarani memory since the invasion of the Mongols. And even back then, what the Mazarandi dwellers had taken for a storm was actually the devastating blast of air preceding Genghis Khan's bloody horde. 
At any rate, this biting wind flowing in, flowing in from the frozen plains of Russia could portend nothing good. Now, picture the marvelous estate that belonged to your great-grandfather, Montazamamov. Two imposing buildings, each with 60 rooms, outbuildings, armories, kitchens, reception rooms, horse-filled stables, all nestled deep into the very heart of the forest at the foot of the Alborz Mountains. No fewer than 268 souls lived there, all under the care of Montazamamov. On that February day in 1896, a Saturday, I believe it was, he had given the order to draft-proof the doors and windows and to stay inside until the world calmed down a bit. How long would that cursed storm last? What state would his lands be in when it was over? For hours, these questions and many others nagged at Montezumamok, whose mood was as dark as the sky. He lived in the main building, the Biruni, with 123 armed men whose job it was to protect his lands and a dozen young male servants. Though it was only across the inner courtyard from the Biruni, the other building, the Adaruni, seemed as remote and impenetrable as the promised land itself. This was where Montezuma's 52 wives lived, women who had come from all four corners of the country with his 28 children and 20 or so female servants. He was the only man who had the right to enter the building, the only one who knew the heavy scent of perfumes and the quarrels that hung in the stagnant that hung stagnant in the icy air. The shadowy labyrinthine corridors, half-open doors, the rustle of silks, the heady sense of being longed for, desired, the languor of bodies that, uh -huh, well, you know very well what I mean. Yet, all those nights spent in that place which he had, as it were, peopled himself, hadn't relieved your great-grandfather of the bitter sense that his world was slipping away from him. The Adaruni remained a mysterious and crazy place, an enigma, on that day, when the land of Mazanderan seemed to have been reduced to nothing but a pebble in God's hand, Montazumamot feared, above all, that the women were taking advantage of the darkness and chaos to plot against him. After all, how can you know what's brewing in the heart of a neglected woman? How can you be sure of her loyalty, her sincerity, her love? As time passed and the number of his wives increased, he would feel the sharp blade of jealousy twisting deeper and deeper in his gut each time he set foot in the on the first step of the spiral staircase leading to their quarters. It's not as if this humiliating tragedy, undoubtedly incited by Targol Khanum, hadn't taken, pla hadn't taken place. Targol Khanum, who had once been his favorite wife, was the source of an outbreak of itching that had spread among the women's private parts and eventually found its treacherous way to Montezuma's groin. Doctors had come out from the city and a lot of doors had been slammed. Objects had been hurled into the courtyard and bunches of hair had been torn out. Cries had echoed through the mountains. Dishonor had invaded the estate. At that moment, Montezumamok would have liked for that evil wind to blow, blow those cursed women off the face of the earth and take all this misery with them. Well, but that's another story. Thank you. Kanshana. from the short story called The White Rooster. It was on one of those weekend visits that he mentioned her very casually. He didn't single her out for mention. He remarked in passing that he would be in a real strait if it weren't for his niece and a certain Agnes who came each week to help clean his little house. He didn't have to say more. My wifely intuition determined the rest. And that is where I presume it all began. 
He sipped his beer in the living room and watched her thin frame through the open door as she dusted and lingered over the louvers, folded his dressing gown tenderly and made his bed. Week after week, she was into the little intimate details of where he kept his toothbrush, the side of the bed he slept on, the way he hung his shirt by the collar on the corner of the wardrobe door. He watched her leave her fingerprints on everything, and as he moved about his solitary house late in the evening, he felt her lingering presence. At Christmas and Easter, we usually accompanied him down south for a brief holiday, and we stayed in this dark and crooked house without water and electricity. I had the uneasy feeling right from the start that my being there was an intrusion. I went about the house changing things around, putting his shirts on hangers, trying to leave my stamp where she had been. The house was spotless. The children enjoyed this place hugely. It was like camping, they said. An empty living room with two chairs, an ashtray, and a little Sony pocket radio on the dining table. His files, books, Milan Kundra and John Updike lay scattered on the floor. The kitchen had a kerosene stove, a box of matches, one set of cutlery, a plate and a coffee mug and an aluminum kettle. No refrigerator, no flowers. He took us to the Palm Grove restaurant where we sat under palm trees and freshly tapped palm wine was brought down from the trees and served along with peppered meat grilled on hot charcoal. He was bridging the cultures admirably. He had, as they say, his act together. I was the misfit sitting in the heart of Nigeria, donning a brightly colored wrapper and blouse but experiencing an irreparable loss. The Indian movies of my childhood and youth hadn't prepared me for this. And finally, Akweke Enezi. Um, so, so I'm going to read from a portion of the book that's narrated by one of the other selves. You used to smile, Sachi said. You were such a happy child. Why are you not eating? This was actually true, but the not eating was just an experiment I was doing to see how close to the bone I could get Ada down to. She had started restricting by herself before I showed up for some human reason, probably trying to control her body since she couldn't control her mind. It's not important. The point is, once I was there, I took her to new weightless places. 118 pounds. She ran every day for an hour. I had her eat only salads. Hunger grabbed her from the inside intimately. It felt like it had a purpose, like it was doing something. Ada lifted dumbbells and continued running. One day, just like that, she dropped down to 114 pounds of human flesh. Let me tell you, I've never almost flown that well since. Ada's shoulders became knives in her back and her legs looked even longer than when she took ballet in her first semester, and the instructor told her she'd need extra large tights because her legs were that long. But yes, no, she was not eating. It wasn't important anymore what happened to her body, not since I was there. I appreciated it, of course. Embodiment was luxurious, at least at first. 
I felt a new power, a flood of greatness that yes, Ada would regret later, valid, but for now it was good, rich. It meant that I was an I, like I and I, like I wasn't going back to that larger we. <laughs> How can? No, I was free, I had elevated, transcended in fact, risen like steam until it was me standing in the field of Ada's body. She named me this name, Asura, complete with that gritty slide of the throat halfway through. I hope it scrapes your mouth bloody to say it. When you name something, it comes into existence. Did you know that? There is strength there, bone white power injected in a rush, like a trembling drug. Wait, is this how humans feel? To know that you are separate and special, to be individual and distinct? It's amazing. But I had to remind myself that I wasn't human or flesh. I was just a self, a little beast, if you like, locked inside Ada. Still, it was nice to be able to move her body and feel things. When I came in front, I moved like those masquerades from her childhood, with meat layered in front of my spirit face. All I'm saying is, it was good to walk in the world. Ada loved Misha. She loved me because I hated that boy. She loved me because I was reckless. I had no conscience, no sympathy, no pity. She loved me because I was strong and I held her together. I loved her because me. I had known her since I was nothing, since I was everything, since that shell blue house in Umwahia. I loved her because I watched her grow up, because she gave offerings since I started awakening feeding me from the crook of her arm and the skin of her thighs. Let me tell you now, I loved her because in the moment of her devastation, the moment she lost her mind, that girl reached for me so hard that she went completely mad. And I loved her because when I flooded through, she spread herself open and took me in without hesitation. Bawling and broken, she absorbed me fiercely all the way. She denied me nothing. I loved her because she gave me a name. Thank you very much, Akweke Emezi. Thank you, Kanchana Ugbabe, and thank you, Negar Javadi. We have their three books here for sale. If you'd like to go over here to this table here, just next to the bar, at which you can buy a drink. Um, and I commend them all to you, and I want to thank you for coming this afternoon. We, the festival goes, continues to tonight and into tomorrow, concluding tomorrow evening. Thank you all so much. And the authors, this mic doesn't work.
Thank you. 